Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. In today's gathering, we continue on in our Apostles' Creed series, but before we get there, wanted to give you a couple updates happening in the life of our community. First of all, we've got new to South Bend City Church tables happening once again in May. If you live in the South Bend area, we have an in-person option on May 7th at 1215 or right after our second gathering. And if you're long distance or if you can't make it in person and the digital space would be more accessible to you, we have a virtual option on Zoom happening on May 8th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Either way, we would love to know that you're coming. If you're coming in person, we need to know for lunch. And we also want to make sure that if you're coming for the virtual table that we give you a Zoom link. Either way, go down into the show notes below and let us know that you'll be attending. Secondly, we are due for a quarterly financial update. And so before we get to Jason, I'll turn it over to Matt Graybill to give us an update on where we stand with our finances. As always, if you consider yourself to be a part of South Bend City Church, you can give. You can do that by going to the show notes below. And it's through your generosity that we're able to do what we do. So thank you. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today. As I said, we're continuing in our Apostles' Creed series. And when the Apostles' Creed talks about Jesus ascending, we ask ourselves, how do people with a modern understanding of the universe imagine this moment? And is this just an embarrassing scene for people who know that God isn't dwelling in some finite place just above the ozone layer? We explore all this and more as Jason brings our teaching today. We're so thankful that you chose to join us, and we are so, so grateful to have you as a part of our community. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Well, good morning, South Bend City Church. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. Just want to welcome you to South Bend City Church. Uh, if this happens to be your first time here, a special welcome to you. Or if you're here every week, uh, welcome as well. Uh, we really want to be clear and provide clarity for who we are as a church. So uh, you can see more about who we are on our website, but also you can hear a little bit more about who we are, see who we are with our, our mantras. These are like who we are as a community, uh, prayers that we believe in that guide us as a community. Um, there's some mugs and cards over there that explain a little bit more about who we are. Uh, but we made a value and a commitment um, a little while ago to be transparent with numbers. So today is a quarterly update uh, that some of you get excited about, others where you're like, okay, <laughs> let me check my grocery list. Um, so I just want to share these numbers with you because we really want to be transparent as a community about uh, we're so grateful for the ways that you're generous through your time and your finances, and we want to be really clear with where that money is going and how we're doing as a community. So we'll jump right into it here. Uh, so this is the third quarter financial update, a reminder that we shifted our fiscal year starting in July. That kind of helps us plan a little bit better. So this is actually, we're just finishing up the third, third quarter. So you can see some general numbers here year to date. Uh, general fund giving year to date, so up until the end of March, um, it's $548,569. Uh, the budgeted expenditures were $564,165, and then actual expenditures, $587,998. Now, looking at that, you're like, yikes, that's going in the wrong direction. Um, a couple notes there. You'll, you may remember in August, uh, we were looking at our finances and seeing we had a drop in our general giving. Um, so we had to make the really tough decision of laying off two staff, Ryan and Amanda. 
Um, so what you're seeing here, actually, we committed to uh, severance with, with both of those employees uh, through November. So that's why our actual expenditures are different than our budgeted expenditures because we created a new budget uh, for this fiscal year. So just to give you a little snapshot there. Um, general giving, though, uh, overall, go to the next slide. Um, so total giving year to date, this is really encouraging. Um, over a million dollars, actually a million dollars, um, $76,567 has been given year to date, which is really incredible. Um, we can't thank you enough. That, like, uh, you might know that like our budget is made up of uh, ministry, uh, operations, and personnel. Um, and in those buckets allows us to do a lot of things as a church. Um, but then there are a few different categories like care, the opportunity to, there's a care line for us to be able to care for people in moments of need, whether that's sickness or maybe that's something with housing um, or travel or, or uh, ways that they just are stuck in life. It allows us to be able to give back to them. Um, we also have the Tribune Project in there. Uh, and some of you I know have asked a question when we got into August about um, have people shifted their giving to the Tribune Project and not into the general fund. You can see here actually that really didn't occur, so we, we continue to have a lot of people that are generous with this community. I'm just amazed by the average attendance for 2022 was 318 people, and we have over 200 people that give regularly to our community, and I just think that's a, that shows a lot of engagement by our community saying, hey, we believe in what's happening here. So um, a lot to call out in just a, like a really great way um, in terms of how you're giving towards what's being done in this community. Uh, the next slide, I think, just gives a better picture in terms of where we're currently at. So this is just the third quarter. So again, uh, just breaking out this, this last quarter, our general fund giving was 192,088, and our budgeted expenditures were 181,071. But actual expenditures were 177,933. Uh, With that's moving in the right way, which shows us that we've actually set the budget at a, a really good spot. Um, and we're in a good place of health. Um, again, just want to say thank you for uh, giving in your generosity this way and allowing us to do what we do. If you want to be a part of giving, you can just go to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. You can set up a recurring gift or you can give in the black boxes uh, out there. But just know what you do makes it possible for us to serve kids, students, and adults, uh, not only here in our gatherings, but in our tables and our streets as well. Um, so that's it on the finance side. So thanks for being here. Uh, hey, I'm Jason. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after the gathering. Uh, we're working through a series that's been going on for roughly 721 months. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but way back in the fall, we started this series that we call Old Creed, New World. And uh, it's funny, when I, when I mentioned this to somebody a while ago, they seriously for half a second thought that we were revitalizing the band Creed. And at first I cringed, and then I thought, if there's anybody that could make new arms wide open, it might be Zach Gillis. <laughs> so I, I haven't talked to Zach about that, but we might get there before the end of the series. We'll see. No, this is a series about a way of understanding reality that's narrated in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is a, a document that comes to us from early in the history of the church, and it's a way that the followers of Jesus have tried to distill the big story that's being told in Scripture and in Christ 
Uh, and we're listening to this not just to ground ourselves or to anchor ourselves in something historical, but also to set it in conversation with the world that we're living in right now. Uh, because there, like, there's things the creed says that are challenging. They might even feel kind of archaic or hard to integrate with the life that we have right now. But there are other ways, if you listen closely and pay attention, that you might discover that the story that it's telling is, in, in fact, highly relevant to the world that we're living in right now. And it's not just something that constrains our imaginations. In a lot of ways, I think what we've been finding through the last several months is that it's actually something that uh, enlivens our imaginations. And it sort of infuses the lives that we are living in, the world that we are living in, with a kind of hope and brightness that's not always easy to find, but if you look for it, it's there. Let me remind you uh, what the creed says, just because I know that not all of you have been here and it's been quite a while since we started. It starts with these big words, we believe. Uh, often the creed is recited, I believe, but the earliest versions of this creed were usually recited, we believe. And Yaroslav Pelikan says that one of the reasons that's good is that this story is almost too big for any one person to carry on their own, or too big for any one person to always believe on their own. And I've said this before, but I'll keep saying it because I think it's important as we sort of calibrate our relationship to faith as a community. There are days when I, I read through these beliefs and I think, man, I'm having a hard time with that one. <laughs> Whether because of questions I'm asking intellectually or because of hard things that I'm living through, but then I find somebody else in the community who authentically and genuinely is able to hold that with a lot of hope and belief. And that does something for me. It's almost like they can believe on my behalf for that moment. And then there are other days when I find maybe I walk in the room full of hope or resonance with something that the story says, and I'm able to share that with somebody else. That's how this is meant to work, right? This is a big story that's meant to be held by a community, which is why we say we believe, not I believe. And then the believe there, uh, we've said this many times now, but the believe might have less to do with just the mental furniture that's in your head, the ideas that are knocking around up there, even though I think that's important, the things that we think and the way that we think. But beyond that, it, it, it connotes heart. Uh, the Latin word credo is something like, I give my heart to this story. I root my inner life in this story. I'm wanting to trust this story. Now, what the story says, it goes on. It says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that, that all the good and beautiful things that we see around us are actually intended to be here by a loving creator who designs these things, intends these things, wants these things. Uh, now, I know when you hear a preacher say, like, design and creation, all of a sudden you think maybe it's a polemic against evolution, but if you've been around here, you know that's not the heart here. In fact, we've explored the possibility that evolution is telling a really beautiful story about how it is that God did all this creating. Uh, next slide. It goes on to take that big, expansive vision of a creator and drop that down into the life of Jesus and say that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. We've observed that these are political terms, only son, our Lord. Uh, these are terms that are sort of pulled from the imperial cult of Emperor Caesar in that time. Uh, where Caesar was known as only son of God and Lord, uh, which means if you're going to follow Jesus, you should probably expect that that path is going to lead you into certain confrontations with the powers of the way things are right now, right? Uh, next slide. We read in the Creed that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Here we get to a, a very, very human experience in the story of bearing child, right? Uh, we'll say more about that today. Next slide. Uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. This uh, became the narrating line for our journey through Lent this year. Uh, further in Lent, we also read this line next, uh, that he descended to hell or to the dead. And we talked there about the kind of paradox of the divine life going all the way into the darkness and the shadows. And we explored some of the vaults that we keep where we tuck away our shadows, hoping that they'll never come out into the light. But in this story, somehow it's as if that's precisely where God locates God's self. 
And then we read this hopeful line that we celebrated just last Sunday on Easter. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And that brings us to today's line in the Creed, which says that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, Let me take you into one of the places in Scripture where we get this from. Uh, This is from Luke chapter 24. Uh, Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. It tells the actual story of his life and death and resurrection, his teachings, his healings. And then, interestingly, Luke is also paired with the book of Acts, which is the story of the church. It's kind of like part one and part two of Luke's narrative. And both of those texts have a a rendering of the ascension moment. We're not going to get too far into the weeds there, but this is the way that Luke tells it at the very end of Luke's gospel. When Jesus had led them, that's his, his friends, his disciples, out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now, I don't know what you think when you read that or when you hear that, but I think a lot of us have been through what you might call a very quick pre-critical, critical journey. So pre-critical, like just take it as it is and get moved by it. You read the story, he's with his friends after he's been resurrected from the dead. You feel all the emotion of his friends having lost Jesus and then getting him back on the other side of that awful suffering. And then he blesses them and he ascends to heaven. And for a moment, it's like really beautiful. But then you start thinking about all the really, really cheesy art that you've seen of this scene. Like Jesus like floating like a Star Trek transporter, right? And then you start thinking a little bit about the awkward realization that our cosmology is different than the ancients. And so for them, like, they actually believe that God is up there. Like, they have an actual view of the, of the universe they're living in where, of course, it's not a globe that they're on, but kind of a flat disk. And down below, you have the kind of pillars of the earth that go down to Sheol or the place of the dead. And then you're living up here in the, in the middle tier, right? And then up above, you've got a, a dome. The sky is actually a dome in this imagination. That's why it can sometimes hold the waters up. And at other times, it can let them down, right? So you've got an actual dome known as the firmament above you. And then up above that, up in the rafters, like quite literally, in the cosmological rafters of the universe, there dwells God. And so, of course, for that ancient cosmology, it makes sense that Jesus, if he's going to go back to be with the Father, goes up. But we have been up there. I mean, maybe not like personally or literally, but like (laughs) our astronauts have been up there. Our telescopes have been up there. However far he seems to have gone, the Webb telescope is like far, located farther out in the universe, right? Now, I get it might just seem kind of a cheesy aside, but this is one of the kind of tensions that people feel when they read ancient stories of an ancient cosmology and try to figure out, like, what do you actually do with Jesus floating up to go and be there in the heavens? Is this like an embarrassing sort of thing where, like, now that we know what's really up there, it reveals this story to be a myth? Is there something else going on? Well, I was like wrestling with this this week and thinking about what it's like for different modern people to hear this story and to ask themselves if they trust it or if it makes sense or what it's saying to them. I've been thinking a lot about that this week, and I was thinking about what it is to be a modern person interacting with an ancient text. And then it also dawned on me that we're not always quite as modern as we think. Um, That even while we have access to all of these modern understandings of cosmology and physics, we still carry within us these sort of deep sensibilities about about architecture in the universe and about what it is to look for God or yearn for God or to seek God. And even today, I don't know about you, but I often, I find there is this thing inside that sort of just gets lifted up when I I pursue that, you know? I was remembering years ago, a friend of mine 
somebody very close to me who I love very much was going through a very, very long, very hard season where his life was at risk. And um, it just, it, it, it had me totally broken to sit next to somebody going through something like that for such a long time. And I, I would try to pray, and it felt like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling and just kind of coming back and slapping me in the face, right? Um, and so I, I sought out a, a way of praying that might help me in my unbelief in that moment. And so the place that I went to that had been sacred for me over the years was the grotto at Notre Dame, and I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about. That's that uh, sort of outdoor carved-out cavern there uh, near the basilica where you can light candles and where people go to pray. And during the season, I would from time to time go to the grotto there because I was looking for something to help me feel that my prayers weren't in vain. And I remember very distinctly one night uh, in the summer, I went into that little cave and I lit a candle for this person. And then there's some kneelers at the mouth of that cave where you can kneel and pray. And so I'm praying and I'm, I'm really saying that, God, it would be nice to have some sense that you are listening at all and that these prayers are making their way to you. And again, if you know the grotto, you can visualize this, but the grotto is, is carved into a hillside, and so above that hillside, there are trees that grow. And I remember like, being down there, kneeling and just looking up, and there above the, the, that grotto cave, the leaves of the trees, they were moving, but they weren't moving the way that wind moves trees, because wind moves trees left and right, but the leaves were like wafting upwards in a strange kind of like otherworldly motion. And I remember thinking like I had my own little miracle there, you know. I was about to call the Pope to verify it, right? Like, <laughs> and like what it did in my heart to see this like strange miracle. Of, it's, it's like you could see my prayers traveling upward through that tree and making their way to God, Right? And then I remember that heat rises and I was sitting in front of a cave full of candles. <laughs> and I remembered like high school science class and I thought, oh yeah, that's the heat from candles <laughs> lifting those leaves, right? And I've thought about that experience so many times because to me it's a little parable of living in a modern enlightened world. But I, what I came back to after that moment of critical analysis, I actually came back to thinking like I am just fine with God who uses heat to give me what I needed in that moment. And even if I know how the special effects worked, it doesn't change the fact that um, my heart was moved in a certain direction. And I know for some of you that might, think, might sound like I've just sort of doubled down on a kind of pre-critical or unenlightened view of that moment, maybe that I've backed away from what we know, but that's not how I see that, really. I, again, I'm not denying that it's heat that was lifting those leaves, but I, I, I genuinely think that a that a miracle and good old-fashioned science can coexist in the very same place to give us what we need in this world. And there I was, like, there was something inside me, and I don't know if it's ancient or primitive or what, but there was something inside me that wanted to look up. Now, I don't actually believe God is more up there than God is here. I don't believe that. I believe God fills everything everywhere with God's presence. I don't think you have to climb up to get to God, but I understand this thing that's always been with us. The ancients, they built temples on mountaintops because they believed that God was up there. And they burned fires for sacrifice so that the smoke could rise to the deities because they believed the gods were somehow up there. And today we, we may not, you know, in our science believe that God is somehow just beyond the ozone layer or in our faith believe that God is somehow more up there than God is here. That might all be true, but it doesn't change the fact that we still carry with us this kind of feeling, don't we? That, that the divine is somehow calling us to an ascent to a lifting, 
to a new height. And here we have a story of Jesus having been crucified and buried in a grave, brought all the way down, all the way down, not just like physically to a low place on planet Earth, but to the depths of humiliation and shame and an experience that was designed to dehumanize a person. We have him descending all the way down. And then just a few days later, we read the story of him ascending all the way up to be with the Father. And it begins to beg questions not about like whether Jesus is like somehow beyond the solar system now still going in that direction like Voyager probe. Like, I think it raises much more interesting questions, and we can tap into these questions because these are the kinds of questions that were being asked from the beginning of this story being told about what it would mean for Jesus and what it would mean for us if after he was resurrected, he ascended. Let me just give you a few, a few like meaning-level observations that go beyond some of these basic questions of cosmology and is he really up there. Uh, the first big, really important thing about this is that it vindicates Jesus and establishes his reign. It vindicates Jesus. So the crucifixion in so many ways would be the ultimate defeat of Jesus, right? I mean, he's been going around for three years saying things that don't make sense to people, saying it's better to love your enemy than it is to hate your enemy, to bless those who curse you. This is a better, truer way of living in the world. This is somehow more connected to reality at its deepest level. He's been saying things that seem ludicrous to so many people. And when he ends up in the grave, you might be tempted like many to say, see, that's, that's the naivety of what he was saying. That's the foolishness of what he was saying. Follow that path long enough and it will lead to your end and there won't be any future after that. But if it doesn't end there, and he doesn't just come out of the grave, but in fact ascends, this is like, this is like the, the highest affirmation you can create in this story for the way of Jesus, to talk about the truth of what he was saying and living into, right? That it, that it actually vindicates everything he was saying and doing and who he was. And that it establishes his reign. Uh, Ephesians 1 writes of Jesus in a way that only makes sense if this, if this moment happened for these people, that Jesus somehow ascended. Uh, Paul says this, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. This is a ascension and vindication language, right? That he's actually ruling now. Now, I don't know if it feels that way to you, what I take this to mean is like the character of Jesus that you see in the Gospels, the power of his commitment to loving people, his uh, desire for justice, his desire for inclusion and belonging and healing for all kinds of people, that all of that's actually operative at the highest levels of the universe now. I mean, that's the way of taking that, but I don't know if it feels that way to you. Like a lot of days, whether it's in your household or in our city or in the larger systems of our world, it can feel like whatever is running all of this is not doing a very good job, right? I get that. I get that. Uh, let me give you a little uh, metaphor for how I've been thinking about this lately. Because I read Paul saying that Jesus is reigning over all things. And I look around and I kind of want to say, we need a change of administration, bud. Because like, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be working out very well. Uh, but this is uh, the image that comes to mind. Uh, a very dear friend of mine with whom I've worked for years and years, and I know him very, very well. I've seen his character tested. I've seen him on his best days and his worst days, and I know who this person is. That very good friend of mine uh, not too long ago took a job um, at the highest level uh, of an institution um, that has not been known for behaving very well in the last several years. Um, before my friend took this position, there were um, really 
devastating um, and well-founded accusations of corruption and abuse of power and harassment in this organization. And in the wake of all those accusations, there was a wholesale change of leadership, and then my friend is part of that new administration there. And I've, I've heard others, they've actually sort of like talked to me, they're like, why is he there? And they look at the environment that he's in where he's leading, and they've wondered if that's sort of an indictment on him, or if that's sort of like tells us who he is now, that he would want to be a part of something like that. And the thing I keep finding myself telling them is like, I, I get why you would say that, but I know enough about this person to believe that um, that institution is less likely to change him than he is to change it. And I don't know if he'll be able to do that overnight, and I don't know just how far things will move. And there's a lot that needs fixed there. But I'm more inclined because I know him so well, and I've seen him uh, on the worst days and the best days. I've seen him tested over and over again. I know his character firsthand because I've seen that. I'm inclined to think that his influence will be detected more and more in that institution while he's there. Now, the metaphor is not perfect. You know, uh, we wouldn't write Ephesians 1 about this friend of mine at that institution. <laughs> um, but I say that for those of us who are really struggling to believe like, that Jesus really is at work reigning right now. Because there's so much that does not look like his reign, and I get that. But if he has ascended, and if this is the lens of faith that we have for the world at large, then it invites us to keep looking for signs of his reign, to keep looking for intimations that the world that Jesus believes in is actually being brought out in the world that we have right now. It also reminds us, uh, and we said this again and again in the last couple of years, that um, we need to be careful that we don't just adopt mascot Jesus. Because when we read about Jesus who is vindicated, Jesus who is lifted up, Jesus who reigns, we get Jesus the winner, right? And then we just want to affiliate with Jesus the winner because that makes us winners. And then we take mascot Jesus and we use that mascot Jesus to endorse or baptize all of our, uh, our untransformed ideas and ways of being, right? And then we sort of take mascot Jesus and turn him into a flag and put him on all of our broken ways of relating to each other and all the power games that we play. But that's not what it means for Jesus to be vindicated, right? It's the actual content of his life, of who he was. It's his character that's been vindicated even as he's been vindicated. And so for us to like celebrate Ephesians 1 and to look to align ourselves with that, um, let's keep checking ourselves and asking ourselves if we have fallen into simple mascot Jesus or whether we're embracing the real content of Jesus' life. The um, simplest way that I know to check ourselves on this is to read the Gospels over and over and over again. I really mean that. I don't mean do it to perform some kind of religious deed. I don't mean do it so that like, you can feel like God approves of you more because that's not, that's not the heart there. You've got nothing to prove with God. I don't mean to do it so that you can pass the theology exam. I don't mean it for any of those reasons other than to simply keep coming back, to, like being present with the actual Jesus. And there might be many pages in those gospel stories that are confusing to you. There's still plenty that are confusing to me. There might be plenty of, of questions that get raised and fewer answers that I have after all of that. But if we want to trust this, if we want to believe this, if we want to give our hearts to the idea that he ascended, that he reigns, then we might want to keep spending time with him and discovering the actual nature of his character, of his way of acting and being. So if you want to do anything with us this week, you might just like open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and just hang out there. And don't worry if it's all a little confusing. Frankly, if, if none of it's confusing, I'm suspicious. 
you don't have any questions, you might not be like reading with your, bri- your brain and your heart. But um, uh, if he is vindicated, if he's actually reigning, and we want to align ourselves with that reality, we might want to actually spend time with him. Second thing I want to uh, observe about what this would mean beyond like the bad special effects in the Star Trek transporter scene where Jesus goes up, like beyond, beyond that, like the actual heart and meaning of this, this observation comes from a fight that they had early in the history of the church about this scene. So if you know a little bit of Christian history, you might know that in the wake of Jesus, one of the fights that the Christians kept having was about, like, what does it mean to say that Jesus is fully divine and fully human? What, like, what are we saying about humanity and divinity and that strange equation? And among those people who were fighting about all of that, there was this prominent stream of people, these, these prominent ideas that resisted the possibility of divinity and humanity being married together, of flesh and spirit being married together. It just was really troubling for them. So they kept trying to find ways to sort of manipulate or twist this story so that they could absolve themselves of that tension that they were wrestling with. They did it on the cross. There's an idea that maybe somehow it wasn't actually the divine Christ there who dies on the cross because the idea of God being nailed to a cross, it just, it wasn't working for their logic, right? And in the ascension, one of the ways this gets sort of played out among the heretics is that the the spirit of Jesus somehow ascends, but not the body. That, That was just sort of easier for them to get their head around. But those who sort of held the day and those who who gave us these creeds and have shaped the way that Christianity has been taught for 2,000 years, over and over again were the ones who were saying, no, 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 you're missing part of the genius of this story, part of the revelation of this story, part of the beauty of this story is the actual marrying of humanity and divinity. That, That our humanity doesn't somehow make us less eligible for the life of God. Um... In the ascension, the teaching is that God has somehow actually taken humanity up into God's self. Humanity has been taken up into God, married to God in some way that isn't going to be undone. Um, N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar who works through this, and he says this specifically with regard to the ascension. The one who lived our life, that's a human life, and died our death, that's a human death, has now been exalted and glorified precisely as a human being. God has put a human being at the helm of the universe. Humanity and divinity have been brought together in this story. Now, if that sounds big and abstract for you, just observe all of the ways that all of us have been taught that you've got to run from your humanity if you want to get closer to God. This, this shows up in many expressions, a few that I've thought about this week as I've been reflecting. Um, on the spectrum of emotions that are human, we tend to all have a few that we're the most afraid of. They feel the scariest to us, the most comfortable for us, right? For some, it might be anger. Anger might be sort of a scary human emotion. And so we run from it. We somehow think we're closer to God if we're not angry or if we can just sort of like tamp that down. For others, it's grief or sadness. Weeping or lamenting. This very human experience of ours that we just try to run from. We somehow feel closer to God if we aren't weeping, if we aren't mourning, if we aren't lamenting. Others I've discovered are actually more comfortable in an experience like grief. And joy or elation or connection 
these feel unsafe. They feel a little scary, right? But they're so deeply human. And one of the ways, whether it's like a family system or whether it's just your own sort of psychology or whether it's a religious environment that you've been in, but one of the ways that we've, we, we seem to think that we get closer to God by being less human is by not just embracing the fullness of emotional experience. And maybe today, if, if you want to take the ascension seriously, I know this might seem like a leap, but I don't think it is. If you want to be the person who says, we believe that he ascended. If you want to say, I give my heart, I trust the story that says that humanity was taken up into God and now dwells with God. If you really want to trust that story, then just look for whatever part of the emotional experience of humanity you were most afraid of. And ask yourself if you might want to be brave enough to let yourself have those feelings. I'm serious about that. Maybe it's not emotions, maybe it's bodies. Uh, religious spaces have a complicated relationship with bodies sometimes. The world that we've created too, whether through media or the stories that we tell, has a complicated relationship with bodies. Um, for you to have a body, a flesh and blood body, like that, that might be something that uh, feels like more of a liability than a divine gift. I don't know how you experience your own life in your body. It might be because of harmful messages that have been perpetuated about you. I know that women hear different stories about their bodies than men do in the world, although there are very harmful stories about men's bodies and women's bodies that get told and they get idealized, right? Um, different stories about different abilities in bodies, different stories about different ages in bodies, different stories about colors of skin. I mean, we could go on and on, but we, we have built a world that does lots to say that like your body is a liability. And when you try to bring that into your life with God, so many of us have felt that like these flesh and blood bodies that we have are somehow something to run away from if we want to be closer to God. But I don't believe it. Uh, for some, it's, it's um, desire, sexuality. These, these are gifts of having a body. And you're not going to get closer to God by being less human somehow. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but there's all that language in the New Testament about flesh and spirit, right? I'm not going to um, take the, the detailed time to exegete what's really going on there. Uh, so today, take my word for it, and then we'll talk about it later. Um, when, when, Paul, when Paul says, like, put to death the flesh, he's not talking about you having a body. There's something else going on there that we'll teach on another occasion, okay? He's not talking about that. Now, sure, whether it's emotions or desires or sexuality or whatever you name it, there are ways of channeling those things that are harmful and ways of channeling those things that are holy. Absolutely, right? But can you not observe that repression has gotten us nowhere? Like somehow trying to pretend that you're not human has not gotten us any closer to holy, right? And one of the ways you know that is so, how, how many times do we find out that somebody who's been bloviating, who's been like, yelling loudly, trying to convince other people to be less human, to repress something. We find out they're the ones who are repressing something. <laughs> like, that's a tale as old as time, right? Just think through, like, headlines about preachers. Like, that's just, that's just how that goes sometimes. Uh, the repression game has not made us holier. So whatever it means to live holy lives, sacred lives, where our humanity is channeled in a beautiful and redemptive direction, we're not going to get there by being less human. I think we're going to get there rather by wrapping our arms around the totality of our experience in these bodies and lives and then looking for how God is, is um, shaping and channeling those energies for the good. Uh, third observation about this whole ascension thing. This Jesus who actually walked around, who lived in the finite confines of a body, 
somehow it's, it's always been the experience of the church that in this ascension, Jesus didn't like disappear from us. Somehow Jesus became just more available to us in this moment. Uh, a little bit later in the creed, we're going to read about the gift of the Holy Spirit. But, but somehow, and again, I know we're in the realm of mystery here. We're in the realm of things that sort of defy the rational in certain ways. But somehow it's been the experience of followers of Jesus all around the world for 2,000 years that, that somehow in this act, that Jesus who lived contained in a body, that Jesus could only be where his body was walking those roads 2,000 years ago, that somehow in this act, Jesus doesn't disappear, Jesus expands. The presence of Jesus isn't taken away. The presence of Jesus is universalized and somehow made available to anyone anywhere who's looking for it. Uh, I find this helpful, especially in the days when I realize the more that you want to open your heart to God, sometimes the harder it gets. The more that you want to care about the things that Jesus seemed to care about, the more complicated your life's going to get. Often the less comfortable that your life is going to get. And it's like, I keep bumping into these conundrums of like, well, how, how am I supposed to actually walk this out? It sounded really good in theory, and now we're here trying to do it. And it's really stinking complicated sometimes. It raises more questions than it answers sometimes. And if Jesus just like dropped these ultimatums and then left us, that really stinks. <laughs> if he said, like, love your enemy and pray for those who curse, bless those who curse you, like, if he, he drops that very challenging mandate on us and then just runs away, like, good luck, guys, figure it out. I mean, we're really stuck, aren't we? If Jesus is calling us into a kind of community that doesn't exist naturally, where we belong to each other across all of the lines that we have drawn, economically, racially, politically, like if we're being called to belong to one another in ways that defy all of that, if that's part of his invitation for us, and then he just like runs away and says, good luck, figure it out, that stinks. There's a reason that kind of community doesn't exist very often. It's hard. And it requires us to somehow work our way out of patterns of living and being that have been with us since the beginning of our species. But this story says that he didn't like run away from us. He somehow became universally available to us in this act. And again, we'll see more of that story in the gift of the Spirit. But for Jesus to ascend is for Jesus to expand. Thank God. Because I think for us to actually try to take seriously the life of love that he has called us to, we could continue to benefit from his presence and teaching. Right? Um. We have a, an opportunity coming up for people who, who want to specifically say yes to that, avail themselves of that, who want to bank their life on that presence, on that promise, and it's baptism coming up on May 7th. So we've been talking about this throughout the creed. Uh, traditionally, in fact, one of the ways that you would prepare for baptism is to study the creed. So I don't know if you know that, but we've been doing that since September. You're welcome. If, as we've been working through this over the last weeks or months, and this, this idea of like we believe, we give our heart, we trust this story, we want to open our hearts to this story, if that has moved you, stirred you, called you, compelled you, provoked you, if it's left you unsettled a little bit, like it won't let you go, then this might be for you. Uh, baptism is a ritual given to us by Jesus for people who want to trust Jesus. It's stacked with layers of meaning like death and resurrection, uh, new birth, cleansing. There's all kinds of sort of layers of symbolism written into the, the act of baptism. But on May 7th, we're going to have an actual pool of water right here. And uh, we will baptize people who want to be baptized that day. And um, this is for people who, among other things, are saying, 
I think I'm actually trusting and welcoming the idea that Jesus hasn't disappeared, he's expanded, and he's with us, and he wants to lead us and help us keep figuring this out. Um, if you're contemplating baptism, we have a few questions that might help you. Uh, you. You could just ask, do I trust Jesus to bring me into life in God's kingdom? Do I think he's actually willing, able, and available to do that? Next one. Do I want God to live God's life in me? Am I welcoming that kind of opening inside, a kind of surrender, right? Uh, next slide. Am I aware of my own tendency to live a life that's less than the love, truth, grace, and peace that God wants to live in me? This isn't shaming language, but this is like sober awareness, right? And then this next one. Do I trust God's willingness to forgive and embrace me? Do I trust that in naming and owning all the sort of broken places in my life that, that those things are met with mercy? Do I believe that? And then this, am I ready to be known as a follower of Jesus? Not mascot Jesus, the actual Jesus. Like, am I ready to go public in this room and in my life to say, yeah, Jesus is the center of the story that I trust about God. And however imperfectly, I'm a disciple of his, learning to walk that way out together, right? Um, if you find yourself stirred toward baptism, just head online to our website. Uh, you can register there. You can also use that link to just ask to, to meet with us. Maybe, maybe you'd like to process it with somebody on our team. We'd be happy to do that too, but use the link. Um, you can decide to get baptized whenever you want. We're not going to like stop you. But if you get registered before April 30th, that's helpful uh, because then we'll be like ready for you. Um, but frankly, you could walk in May 7th and decide on the moment that that's right for you, and we would be uh, more than happy and, and ready to welcome you in that moment. But baptism is coming up. Um, I hope today that you feel the big arc of this, this creed story. It starts out like, it, it just doesn't mess around, right? It's like, we believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in this generative, creative love that at the heart of the reality, there's a mystery that is lending existence to everything that is. I mean, that's big and metaphysical, I get that. But then quickly, it drops down into the flesh and blood life of Jesus. And that that same big, beautiful mystery that is animating quarks at the quantum level and moving the cosmos with gravity, like somehow that same mystery showed up and loved and lived and gave itself for us. He dropped down into that very, very, very particular life of Jesus. He showed us what flesh and blood looks like when it is united to God. And then we kind of swing right back to the universal and say that, yeah, and that particularity is made real and present for us. Jesus, who has gone to be with the Father, has not disappeared from us. He's been expanded for our benefit, that we might actually walk with him in every moment of our lives. Um, the team led us in a song at the beginning of our gathering that I thought was so fitting. I asked if we could do it again for a moment. Um, because I, I know that if you open your heart to this and, and you actually want to believe in love, you want to you trust that mystery at the heart of the universe. Life doesn't get easier, it gets more complicated. And um, even in the last year, I can think of moments where our work together has been so hard and it's been easy to feel a little bit lost inside some of the challenges that we face as we try to do this together. And I find I have to keep coming back to the idea of Jesus actually being present with us and walking with us to navigate these complicated roads together. And so um, if you want to, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, and you could let uh, just a little bit of this song wash over you if that's helpful. And maybe you kind of like can sit back and say, I'm not even sure if I believe this. That's great too. 
Or maybe you want to belt it out and say, like, I'm claiming this for my life because I need it today. That Jesus, who has ascended, has not disappeared. He's merely expanded so that we could walk with him. Jesus who has not only descended into the darkest depths of human experience, may you know that he has ascended to reign with the Father. May we learn to see the outworking of that reign in the midst of a world still broken. May we hunt for his presence leading us as we walk with him, and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.